Welcome to The Vampire Squid, a podcast about increasing transparency and education in finance. This is your host, Alan Lee, and welcome to episode 41 of The Vampire Squid. Today, we continue our conversation with Oswath and talk a little bit more about the technology industry. We talk about his views on the markets as well as his recommendations for books and readings if you want to learn more about finance. Also, if you guys have any questions, comments, suggestions, you can always email me at alan, A-L-A-N, at thevampiresquid.com and please visit my Facebook page, facebook.com slash thevampiresquid. So without further ado, I hope that you guys enjoy and here's Oswa. And you mentioned growth stocks, um, and growth stocks I think are uh, fairly consistent with you know how technology companies are are performing. What what are your thoughts on their valuations and how they diverge from uh, traditional companies? No, they're all. I mean, there's no traditional company, right? Companies are like human beings. There's a life cycle. There's no such thing as a traditional company. You can have a mature company, you have a growth company, you have a stock. Think of it the same way. You think of a baby, a teenager. There's no traditional human being. A human being went, uh, no, was a baby once, was a teenager once, was in the prime of his life once, as a middle-aged once, and then he ages. So, you know, all companies go through that life cycle. So there's nothing traditional about a company. It's where a company is in the life cycle, and technology companies are all over the place. So I think that you can look across the life cycle, and you can see differences across these companies. So it's, you know, you can't, there's no such thing as a tech company automatically being a growth company. Companies vary as you go across the life cycle. I guess the point was, um, you know, with a lot of technology companies, even in the private phase, getting billion-dollar uh, valuations, which I, I think is a little bit more skewed towards the technology industry. Uh, just wondering if you had thoughts on on those companies. Now, 50 years ago, those were the railroad companies. Those were the auto companies. 120 years ago, those were the railroads. It's not technology. It's young companies that are young companies in a growing business. So 100 years ago, when automobiles were started, it's the automobile companies that were the young startups that were getting high valuations. 200 years ago, when railroads were being built, so don't make it, it's really not about technology. It's about whatever part of the economy is growing is where you're going to see these these outsized valuations because that's where the growth is. It's got little to do with technology and more to do with growth. The one difference about the technology space is it's easier for a technology company to grow from small to big quickly than it is for an infrastructure company. For an automobile company to go from small to large, it's got to build assembly lines. That takes decades. For a technology company to go from small to large, you don't do a thing. I mean, think of they don't own the cars. They don't hire the drivers. You know, you can go from nothing to 60 billion in five years. Um, and that's... That's the nature of technology companies, which means that they can they can get much higher valuations early in the life cycle than an infrastructure company simply because their life cycle is compressed. Interesting. So would you say that since their life cycle is compressed, they reach maturity quicker and they would necessarily decline at a quicker rate than... I describe tech companies as aging in dog years. <laughs> But basically, a 20-year tech company is like a 100-year manufacturing company. So if you think about, and you can think of tech names that have zoomed and crashed and in the face of 25 years gone from nothing to 
$200 billion in value back to nothing again. It's the nature of the process. It actually makes it a challenge to to manage a technology company because you know that your rise is going to be faster. You're not going to hang around that mature phase very long. and Your decline is going to be faster. So it all becomes a question of how do you manage a company to make your mature phase last a little longer and your decline be a little more gradual. It's every tech company CEO's nightmare because once you become mature, that defensive game is so much more difficult in a tech company than a manufacturing company. Hmm. And what do you think about these technology companies that value themselves off of uh, non-cash flow metrics or even non-revenue metrics? Uh, they value themselves off of users or clicks. They don't value them. Again, they price themselves. There's a big difference. Pricing is you attach a number to a company based on what other people are paying. And if you're not, if you don't have any revenues and you're not making money, the only thing I can price you on is what I can see, which is going to be the number of users, the number of subscribers, the number of downloads. So the pricing game doesn't require that you do any elaborate business model. It just says it's like when you buy a house, you price it based on square footage. Same thing with, with, with these companies. You price things based on something you can observe. And they're pricing it, and the only thing you can often observe at these companies is things like users and downloads. Interesting. And even when these companies are going public and they're negative in cash flow, do you have any thoughts on in the recent markets with you know a lot of technology companies going public while they're still losing a lot of money for the foreseeable future? So what? No. It's you know you're buying a young company. As long as you walk in with open eyes, I don't see a problem with it. You're not going to give dividends. You're not buying as long as you're not buying it for the wrong reasons. As long as you're not buying the company expecting to pay dividends next year. Between you and the company, I've never felt the urge to step in between an investor and his or her investment because it's that's your money. It's you. You. It's your decision to make. It's not my job to come and tell you not to do it, and it's not my job to come and bail you out if you lose money on doing it. So if you want markets to be healthy, you got to let investors live with the consequences of their mistakes. Because that's how you learn. So no, poor you, you were misled. No, no, you bought the stock, you live with it. That's basically it. And these companies, you read the prospectus, you know. You, it tells you quite, um, many of these young IPOs will tell you quite openly, we'll, we might never make money. We might not make it. And you still buy the stock and it does make it. Well, congratulations, you made a lot of money. If it doesn't make it, recognize that risk and return go together. This was a risky investment and this time it did not pay off. Have you ever considered going into industry and working as a hedge fund analyst or starting your own fund? Why would I want to do that? To make money and use your learnings on valuation? I make enough money to buy everything I need. I have a life I love to live. I do a job that I absolutely so I see no need for it. I mean, it's, you know, to me, that's, I mean, as I said, if you're a, if you're a business, your objective is going to be maximize profits. If you're a human being, your objective on in in life is to maximize happiness. And, you know, sometimes I think people replace my happiness with money and we see where that takes them. So I've never felt the need to go there because, you know, I make, when I'm lucky enough to make more than enough money to cover everything I, I need, maybe not everything I want, but everything I need and doing, doing something that I absolutely love to do. I think um, you can't ask for much more than that in life. That makes sense. As you're teaching students um, and as you're continuously learning, uh, what what are some of the biggest things that you've learned from the students that you've teached? That that the way people that that no the way people learn 
is different for different people. The speed at which people learn is different for different people. The different people have different objectives. That Not everybody is as excited about the things you are. And you have to accommodate lots of different backgrounds, lots of different needs, lots of different end games, and accept that this is just a small part of their lives. You, know, you, can't, you can't step in there and say, this is the most important thing you will ever learn. That is hubris. I mean, people have different different end games, and they have to work out what works for them. Sure. You know, when students are learning about finance and learning about investing, what are some books or videos that you recommend they they read? And I know you mentioned previously that it's uh, you know not necessarily the best idea to read Investing 101 or copy Warren Buffett's theory, but what are... You know what I tell you? Just read the Wall Street Journal every day. Just, just, just read it, you know, and, and you know, it's... Uh, Books can take you only so far. You know, you need a framework for thinking about investing. So I suggest Bert Malkiel's um, Random Walk Down Wall Street. I mean, it's a great way to get to start to think about how do markets work and why it's so difficult to beat markets. You know, I would, you know, I would suggest uh, Jeremy Siegel's stocks for the long run because you look at the history of what stocks have done. You know, but I would start with those and. You can look at the classics, Ben Graham's Security Analysis. It's very dense and it's a tough read, but it'll give you a sense of how investors think. You can look at uh, their books on trading. You can look at um, The Education of a Speculator, which is a book that talks about you know, a trader and how he learned to trade. So lots of great books out there. And I'd also read The Madness of Crowds, which is a book um, which is almost 150 years old about how human emotion can often drive markets and that emotion can drive markets to price tulip bulbs at $50,000 a piece or um, create the South Sea bubble or the dot-com bubble. And you realize how much, how little we've changed over 500 years. We think we're incredibly sophisticated, that we have big data and all these great models, but fundamentally we still have those same human traits from the 1400s or the 1200s that will come back and create exactly the same things they created then. The only difference is rather than going to a pub in London and trying to pass rumors around, you go on CNBC and you pass the rumors around. So you just have a bigger megaphone. But it's, it's amazing how we do the same thing, how we make the same mistakes over and over. And if you're asking, why don't we learn? It's because it's human nature. Our human nature is we have selective amnesia. We forget our past mistakes. We make new ones and we move on. And I don't think that's a problem. That's the nature of markets. I don't see bubbles, for instance, as some hideously bad thing. They're part of markets. They're part of the fact that human beings left to their own devices will tend to be over-optimistic and try to do things that they really can't do. Good. That's how we advance. So to me, every bubble in history has created change in society. I ask people, would you rather live in a world run by actuaries? Because in that world, we'd still be in caves because they'd still be assessing probabilities of getting out of caves and using this fire thing or moving to metal tools. Sometimes you've got to take a leap into the unknown, and that's what markets sometimes do. And you get burnt by it, but that's the way we advance. Interesting. Just reflecting on your current sentiments, what do you think about the stock market today? Is there, um, would you characterize this as a bubble or, or not? I mean, I'd say I'm not a market timer. I've discovered that trying to prognosticate about markets can get you on CNBC. You can write books, but it's one of the most useless exercises known to man. 
The world, the market is an incredibly complex mechanism. You have no idea what's driving it and where it's going to go. So I take it as it is and I, I pick individual stocks that I can, where I can bring. I mean, there's a very simple rule in investing. If you bring nothing to the table, don't expect to take anything away. I bring nothing to the table when it comes to markets. There's nothing that I know about markets that everybody else doesn't already know. So I don't see myself as having any special advantage in forecasting the direction of markets, but I might be able to get an advantage when it comes to forecasting individual companies. So I'll take my licks wherever I think I have a better shot and I'd rather stick with individual stocks and try to forecast where the overall market is going. What are your thoughts on um, a discount cash flow analysis versus the uh, comparable companies analysis? One is pricing and the other is valuation. That's what we've been talking about all through. When you do comparable companies, you're pricing the company. When you're doing discounted cash flow valuation, you're doing a valuation of the company. So really, the question is, you know, would you rather do valuation or pricing? Depends on whether you're an investor or a trader. If you're an investor, I think you need to value companies. If you're a trader, you're trying to buy at a low price and sell at a high price, then use comparable companies because you're playing the pricing game. Play the game you came to play. If you came to play the pricing game, don't waste your time on a discounted cash flow valuation. If you came to play the investing game, then let's talk. DCF might be one way you can get that estimate of value, but it's not the only way. Basically, all you need in intrinsic valuation is some mechanism for bringing in the fundamentals of a business. Cash flows, growth, and risk. DCF brings it all conveniently in one place, but if you have a different way of computing intrinsic value, I'm all with you. What are some of the other ways of uh, computing intrinsic value that you've encountered? Well, you could do very simply assume the accountants are right. So when you use book value as your measure of intrinsic value, you're saying rather than do this cash flow stuff, I'm going to assume the accountants have the value already right. So accounting value. Is a, is a different way of thinking about intrinsic value. You could do liquidation value, or you could look at what you would get today if you sold off individual assets. They're all measures of intrinsic value. I mean, I prefer DCF because it's, to me, it's the most flexible way of valuing even young companies. I can value with a DCF, but I can't do accounting value or liquidation value. There's nothing to account for. And if I liquidate it, what am I going to get? So I, th- I prefer DCF, and I think it's actually vastly misused by most of the people who use it, including most bankers. I'd much rather that bankers just stuck to price because they're pricers. Their job comes from making transactions happen. They're more like realtors than investors, right? Because a realtor has to make a transaction happen. They price houses to sell. Same thing with bankers. They have to price IPOs. They have to price companies to sell. So I wish they wouldn't do this DCF stuff because their heart's not in it. And they, they're, they're some of the most abysmal DCFs I see come from big banking names. So I wish they just stuck with P ratios and comparables and just did a good job of pricing instead of playing this this game of charades where they act like they're doing a DCF when it's quite clear that they, you know, they have no idea what they're doing. Hmm. Would you say that, you know, with bankers that use DCF, they're sort of computing a DCF so that they can get the price that they want in the comparables? Exactly. It's reverse engineer. That's why it's a charade. Now, why do it? I'd rather you didn't show me that DCF with all its flaws and inconsistencies designed to reverse engineer into a number you wanted to see in the first place. But that's exactly what it is. Would you say um, pricing versus uh, intrinsic valuation um, in the stock market, is there an advantage to one or the other? Play either game. You just have to play it consistently and you need to bring different strengths to the table. If you're a trader, you need to have a really strong stomach, the capacity to make decisions quickly and instinctively. And I mean, the same qualities that make for a great gambler make for a great trade, right? 
that capacity to turn off the emotional part of your mind and essentially trade. Like you can observe other people's emotions and take advantage of them, but you don't get emotionally drawn in. In fact, um, there's a study that's not very charitable towards tra- great traders and shows that the parts of the brain that are missing in sociopaths is exactly the part of the brain that's also missing in great traders. Because it's really what they, what you, what sociopaths do is they can cut off the emotional side. They can actually observe somebody suffering and not feel it. And the trader can actually see losses in front of them and not feel emotionally affected. And for great trading, you have to be able to disconnect. So I think that the qualities that make for a great trader are very different than the qualities that make for a great investor. And I know for one that I could never be a good trader. I don't have that instinct. I don't have that capacity. Do I have what it takes to be a great investor? I don't know. But I know what what, what you need for investing. And the thing you need most of all is faith. Faith in in some philosophy that is built on on reality. And I think that, you know, that's why I think most people who claim to be investors are nothing of the sort. They're really traders in disguise who just go back to trading. The drop of a hat. When when you think of pricing and when you think of valuation, when they converge, do you would you say that the market is fairly valued then? If they converge, right? There's no. That's why I said it's fate. I can't guarantee that. It, it, the, the, this is there is no decided date where they. So if they converge and you have faith, and as an investor you have faith that it will. Well, it's for a moment, right? Markets are never permanently stable. So what what markets? So it's almost like by accident the price can be equal to the value and then be off in the other direction. Mm-hmm. So I've had stocks which were undervalued that I bought and the stock hits the value and it keeps going. It gets overvalued. Markets zigzag around fair value, and you're essentially playing that zigzag game to see if you can take advantage of, you know, as Warren Buffett called him, Mr. Market. What do you do outside of um, teaching and, and valuation? Uh, do you have any other hobbies that you uh, particularly partake in? I play tennis, I read, I watch movies, I do things that normal people do. With my podcast, uh, it's... The goal is to increase transparency and you know education in finance. Do you think there's a per se lack of transparency in finance today? I think the reality is as disciplines age, they become more opaque because there's more stuff that they accumulate along the way. I mean, is there transparency in physics? You pick up a physics journal, can you even make sense of one hundredth of what's going on? I mean, I think if you pick up a journal of finance, of course it's going to be opaque because you're you're, it's like, you know, it's like reading a manual on how to wire the, the electricity for a house and you haven't ever even connected a light bulb on your own, right? Or put in a light bulb on your own. But if you read the Wall Street Journal, I mean, I think it's perfectly understandable. I think part of the problem is people are afraid of numbers. They're afraid of finance. They're afraid of money. And because they're afraid of money, they will invent every conceivable excuse for not learning about it. There is no excuse left anymore for not doing your homework. This is in the 1970s or 80s. There are hundreds, hundreds of, you know, writers who write for people who want to learn finance. So if you don't know the basics of investing, you have only one person to blame. It's yourself. It's not because the business has become opaque. It's because you don't want to look behind the curtain. You don't want to do your homework. I think that are there people in finance who are opaque? Absolutely. You know why they get away being opaque? Because everybody else is too lazy to do their homework. They can get away with their opacity because nobody can ask them that common sense question. 
So my suggestion is, you know, if you really want to learn about investing, it's all out there. I mean, my classes are all online. You know, much of what I write is pretty much, I, I think, readable if, you, if you're willing. It's not going to be an easy read the first time you do it. Because you're going to read operating income and you're going to say, what the heck is operating income? You know, how is it different from earnings per share? And it's not difficult to find out. It's just a Google search away. But you've got to be willing to do it then and make that connection. Because if you let it say, oh, it's opaque, operating income, I have no idea what it is, then you're never going to catch on. Because it is going to be too opaque if you're not willing to kind of confront the basics of the business. But I think the information is out there. I think, in fact, I would argue that if you wanted to learn investing, you're in the golden age. I mean, the, the, it's all around you. All the information you need is around you. You just have to be willing to invest the time mm-hmm. and be uncomfortable because you will be pushing you know, those parts of it. You'll be, you'll be using those parts of the brain that you kind of stopped using, especially if you had a liberal arts major. You haven't seen a number probably in 10 years. And your, your problem is not with finance. You've just forgotten how to deal with numbers, and they scare you. And because they scare you, it's easy to be easy for somebody selling you stuff to intimidate you, whether it's the insurance guy or your broker or whoever it it is. And if you let yourself be intimidated, I think part of the blame has to be with you because this this is a simple. I mean, this is a simple game. If you strip things down to basics, valuation is incredibly simple. I mean, it's uh, it's it's very basic. It's if you can add, subtract, multiply, and divide, you should be able to value a company. So there's really no excuse for not spending the time to or investing the time to learn more about it because it's out there. Got it. And I and I'm a, definitely a follower of uh, your blog and your email updates, musings on markets, and I'll include that in the uh, the show notes for this this podcast as well. Um, Aswat, thank you so much for your time. And I I know if uh, there's one thing that you could leave uh, my listeners, who I would say is majority millennial listener base, what what would be your advice or or a lesson that you leave them with? Don't worry, be happy. I like it. That sounds too facile, but really, I think people need to get perspective. They worry about day-to-day movements in their portfolio. They worry about whether they'll be able to retire 31 years later. They worry about things that might never happen. And I think we spend our, li- our lifetime worrying about things that never happen, and we never get to enjoy the things that are around us while we're worrying about the future. So just let things come. You know, you'll be okay. You know, roll with the punches. Aswat, thanks so much for for coming on the podcast. I think uh, my listeners will definitely find this very helpful. You're welcome. Take care.